Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. China's annual political season kicks off in sync with spring. The first sessions of the 14th National Legislature and the National Political Consultative Body begin in the first March weekend in Beijing. The meetings, known as the two sessions, are the first after the CPC 20th National Congress last year. National lawmakers and political advisers gathered to chart the cause of the country's development and welfare of its citizens for the year and possibly beyond. The Chinese leadership is poised to announce specific targets for socioeconomic development for the year. So what is on top of the agenda for this year's two sessions? What economic growth can we expect to be set for the country and what are the hot-button issues that the Chinese people care most about? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined from Hong Kong by Professor Wang Jiangyu from the City University of Hong Kong, from Singapore by Tan Ki Jiab, who's the chairman of the Singapore National Committee for Pacific Economic Cooperation, from Australia, Colin Macaris, a sinologist and emeritus professor at Griffiths University, from Beijing, Zun Ahmed Khan, a journalist and research fellow of the think tank Center for China and Globalization, and also from Beijing, David Ferguson, the honorary English editor of the Foreign Language Press. The warmest welcome to all of you for this uh, special discussion. So, Colin, you have been uh, studying China, researching China for decades. Help our audience understand exactly um, how the Chinese political system and political season works and why it matters. Well, I think it matters because um, every year there are particular targets set, but I think more important is the um the general the overall uh, pattern of um development of china um and uh, the the uh, two sessions as they're called i think they have a very special place in determining the um, agenda that's going to be followed but of course the party congress also does a lot about that um and in, in fact it, it uh, matters more but what the uh, the two sessions do i think also matters considerably um, and it gives us some kind of idea about what's on top of the uh, minds of the leadership. Um, and it gives us um, quite a good insight, I think, too, into, into what's on the minds of the Chinese people. And I think that matters a lot. Mm. Well, the Chinese system is definitely different from that in many uh, other countries, especially in developed is, yes. Western countries. I'm going to go to um, Professor Wan in Hong Kong. Help us understand, because the two sessions literally meaning the session of the National People's Congress, which is the national legislature, and the session of the uh, Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is uh, abbreviated to be CPPCC, which is something uh, not so easy to say for many people, but if you know the two sessions, that's fine enough. What is the major difference between the two sessions as symbol of Chinese political system vis-a-vis -vis, uh, those in the West? Professor Wang. Thanks for having me. Uh, China has a rather unique political system. It is called the People's Congress uh, system. So you have the National People's Congress, which according to the Chinese constitution is the top highest political organ uh, in the Chinese political system. And you also have the top political body, which is called, as you mentioned, the uh, political consultative body, uh, comprising a group of advisors, political advisors, to provide advice to the Chinese, to the Chinese leadership. 
so the uh, this is Chinese design of of, the, of democracy and based on the party leadership and united and the united front uh, so it's 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 different from uh, the of course from the Amer American system and the Western system in general is based on separation of powers so the the so-called two sessions the, which are basically the annual event of the legislatures and the political advisors so they have two things to do the first thing is to turn party policy into state policy right so so many of the proposals would be codified into laws and some of the policies will become state policies to be implemented at all levels and also it is an annual opportunity for the people who are appointed as political advisors to provide feedback from all corners of the chinese social life David, you have been uh, in China for many years. How does this system, the system that Professor Wang just uh, eloquently explained, how does that reflect the will, the concern, the aspirations of the people through the deputies to the National Congress and the members of the National Advisory Body? We understand that the deputies are elected and the advisors are appointed. So how do these two organs gather the information, the wish, the needs of the people and translate that into national policies or an input into the national policy making, let's put it this way. The most important aspect of this system is continuity. By picking up on the difference between the way the, the Western system works and the, um, the China system, uh, the West makes a big, big deal of its elections um, and it's a party competition. The Chinese system is much better for long-term planning and implementation of plans. What you don't have in China is constant switches and reverses of policy. What these bodies are able to do is maintain a degree of continuity through changes in generation and changes in personnel. People individual right down to the the actual individuals themselves are allowed to take part in the process of developing legislation and there is a formal process for the legislature by which the legislature op operates which allows groups like cppcc but it actually allows individual members of the public to make comments and specific proposals and suggestions on pieces of legislation that are being considered so that before any legislation turns into an act, any person in China has the opportunity to contribute to the discussion and to make suggestions. And the actual legislative process is formally structured in a way that it's obliged these contributions into account. Yes, as a matter of fact, every year the deputies that are participating in these two sessions will bring proposals with them which they have formulated over the past year and on the basis of collecting opinion from people in that particular constituency and the, it is obligated that these proposals are followed up as to whether they will be turned into law, uh, what is being done about it, or if not, why that is the case. Let's turn the attention to 
the uh, most uh, pressing issues for this year's two session. And um, Tanki Giap, let me go to you. One of the things, of course, is the announcement of the formation of the new administration team after the 20th Party Congress last year. Um, how significant is that uh, a step for the Chinese political system? And what do you expect to be the central messages that will be sent from this new government team? Yeah, looking at the present team, and uh, we do expect that decision will be made faster uh, because uh, uh, they are of the same uh, 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 camp. And I, I think uh, we expect a smooth uh, decision with less uh, debate. And, and uh, China need to recover very quickly from the COVID. And you can see the zero COVID policy. You can see the reactions very fast. And therefore, we... We look forward to the new government in terms of the opening up. The new government committed to opening up even wider. And we look forward to the investment approval processes, which I think will, will be even faster. So the advantage of this uh, administration, as we see, is that uh, views reflected up. Uh, China is so big, they can be local, regional or countrywide. But once they make a decision, uh, they will make it very transparent and make, make it very open. And it's easier for us and outsider as a foreign direct investors. We can see whether the urbanization, the housing issue has it been, uh, been resolved. And I think this government will be able to, to do this kind of uh, policy switches uh, very efficiently and, and uh, can address the issue uh, with less time wasted on debate. Mm -hmm. um, Zun, you have also been studying the Chinese political system and uh, the Chinese way of life in particular. Uh, what is your understanding of uh, the linkage between, and going back to the political system, between the, 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 the National Congress of the Communist Party of China last year, which is the 20th, to this year's um, top legislature and uh, top political advisory meetings. How do you see the connection between these two and why such an arrangement can mm. propel China's growth as it did over the past uh, 70 years, especially over the past um, 45 years? Thank you. Thank you so much, Liu Xin, for having me on the program. I think Professor Wang also touched upon this. I mean, the link between the Congress and the two sessions. What I can say, I mean, I can, uh, of course, all of our other guests have also mentioned different aspects. Of what is the significance? How are people's perspectives, frontliners' perspectives brought into, you know, in the form of uh, suggestions and then formulated into policy? So for me, I think if, if I look at it from an outsider's perspective, people who are not very familiar with the system, is that the party congress gives a long-term perspective, a vision for the next coming years. And the two sessions is really about enactment of specific policies. It's also about reflection. So whereas, you know, David was very rightly pointed out that there is a system which regards continuity as a top priority. China's development, as you also said, 70 years, and especially the reform and opening up, all of this period has been about a predictability, understanding a long-term perspective, and then uh, constantly reflecting on what further needs to be done. So the, the two sessions, especially this year, uh, the top priority is uh, COVID recovery. Uh, all economies in the world have been affected during these three years. If you actually, you know, if you actually look at some statistics, how China's policies have 
campaign have protected ordinary people as well. You can look at, for example, inflation in China is the lowest in the G20 countries and the sixth lowest in the world. Um, other factors as well, you know, the, the level of safety that people have enjoyed over these years has been unprecedented. It's been uh, probably in many ways, you know, a policy that has taught, that has taught people uh, that has been an example for many other countries. That said, now moving forward, the, the two sessions are going to allow specific policies that are going to address these factors. Economic recovery and, as you mentioned, taking the frontliners, ordinary people's, individuals, priorities, what, what is bothering them. And here you have for the CPPCC, which also David and other speakers pointed out, it is people in specific industries. You can say think tankers, doctors, uh, people who are driving bus drivers this is the kind of input the real ground input that is coming into motion and that is being considered secondly even now with the internet chinese social media is very vibrant uh, people are expressing what are the concerns they have and there's also a specific system to get their feedback on what should be the priority policies to help people also improve the quality of their lives and understand what are the younger people? What are the emerging generation and mm -hmm. also uh, the middle class, which is so important? What are their key concerns? Yeah. So in the end, two sessions every year are about reflection, about enactment of new policies and about understanding what is working and what can be improved. Yeah. Colin, um, I still want to continue a little bit on the political arrangement here because this is very important for people to really understand how the Chinese system works. We call it a whole process, people's democracy. But you know, individuals don't really go and cast a vote, but they do select their People's Congress deputies. And, and based on that, they will select the higher level of People's Congress deputies and until they go to the National Congress uh, level. And yet, and yet, it people, ordinary people's wills and, you know, their opinions are able to be reflected in the uh, top policy making. How does that work here exactly according to your understanding? And how is that a form of democracy that uh, has propelled really China's economic and social development over the past uh, decades? Well, my understanding is that um, individuals have ways of um, communicating their views and what matters to them and not only individuals but groups of people have ways of um, communicating their concerns to uh, groups that are that are, have been elected um, and uh, that way they can get their views heard by the by the the liang Fei, the two sessions but i think what's also very important to say and that is that the party um, leads this process uh, and it has a long-term vision and it also can listen to views of ordinary people. And I think that that happens. And I think that happens more than it used to. Um, and that seems to me to be a democratic um, process and, and a very good thing. I think that uh, that sort of process, I mean, it's not completely new by any means, but I think that it has been gathering momentum over the last few years. That's my understanding anyway of what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I've, um, I've worked and I've, I haven't been to China since uh, 2019. But I have um, taught many times in China now, mm -hmm. and I see um, the way things are reflected in my students, and the way their their uh, thinking changes, and the way their their uh, inputs into processes um, of administration and and um, and and management go through the, through the um, you know from the bottom up to the top. Yeah. And I think that works pretty well. 
Yeah. Well, um, definitely the system is Chinese and uh, it has worked well. So China is uh, vowing to perfect that, to make that even better. Meanwhile, still uh, setting out specific goals, as I said, for the year and for the next uh, years to come. Professor Wang, now one topic many people pay attention to, of course, is China's economic recovery. Last year, we set the the target at around 5.5%, but uh, because of the disruptions caused by COVID-19, we only reached 3%. Um, what do you think is going to be the picture this year? What kind of uh, number will be set out that is reasonable and uh, necessary for China to maintain its development and to keep its people, especially young people, employed? Professor Wang. First, if I may add something to your original question about the, the nature of the Chinese political system, mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, of course there 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 uh, of course uh, twists and turns in implementing it. At least the original design was based on a few principles. It is called the People's Democratic Centralism. So before a decision is made, uh, the party members and those persons in charge will go and go around and collect opinions, collect feedbacks from uh, from all corners of the uh, of the Chinese society and also at all levels. And but once the decision is made, uh, so the government officials and especially especially party members have to implement without uh, reservation. And the uh, the deputies are actually elected at uh, separate levels. So eventually they are supposed to transmit uh, the op the opinion of the people from the grassroots to the to the top level, and also there is also another very important, at least according to the original design of the system, another very important political principle in the system that is called the the mice line. So the uh, the, the officials have to keep very close touch with people. Uh, in the uh, at the grassroots level, mm -hmm. so that is the requirement. So this is how the system was designed to uh, to incorporate the, the opinion of the Chinese people. So this is very much the, the gist of the Chinese uh, political system and also the, the people's democracy. Uh, as for your, uh, your 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 second question about the economy, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed because I'm not an economist. I'm a scholar of international economic law. But I have to say, um, I, I went back to, uh, to to the mainland a few weeks ago. I was uh, The trip made me very confident about I'm actually quite up, upbeat because I see everything is coming back. I mean, everything is coming back. So the uh, people are, are going out to do shopping and uh, to to eat, and uh, the uh, so so, so lives have coming back to to normality. So the uh, and and which makes me actually quite optimistic about hmm. the the rebound of the Chinese economy. Yeah. But I would I would yield the time to those uh, who have economic background here. Yeah, well, definitely. Let me go to uh, Tang Kikiap <coughs> there because um, China's economic recovery prospects is definitely what people are watching. It seems that um, foreign investors are showing an, a stepped up interest or confidence in the Chinese economy. For instance, in January. Foreign direct investment into the Chinese mainland grew by 15% year on year to reach 130 billion US dollars. That's according to China's Ministry of Commerce. So, uh, do you think that reflects the sentiment of foreign investors in general, or are they still taking a wait and see approach? Yeah, as an economist myself, we watch the development of China, especially the GDP growth, very closely. In fact, I just came back from Suzhou Industrial Park. I must say that. This 5.5% uh, 
uh, is uh, uh, is quite realistic. In fact, my projection will be China's GDP growth for 2020 will certainly be at least 5%, if not higher. But for two reasons. One is the low base of 3% last year. So you right. tend to the low base effect. And secondly is uh, from the zero COVID policy, uh, even when to industrial park, we know that foreign direct investment, uh, the kind of uh, effort has been rather slow. And everybody is looking for this opening up. And now we see a quick opening up and all those penned up the uh, decision that supposed to go through and it's taking place very fast now. And we also get signals that local governments, they are supposed to be prepared uh, fast enough to allow this one direct investment uh, to see them and to get the, the, the whole, whole investment process moving. So therefore, we are very optimistic that this uh, growth will be at least 5%. And uh, especially that if China is going to resolve the uh, housing issues and the development in the domestic economy in terms of domestic demand will pick up. And many of the foreign direct investment now in China, it can be uh, even for companies from Singapore in FMB, uh, in urbanization, shopping mall, and, and these are uh, uh, areas that Singapore can participate. And we look forward to the, the kind of very favorable environment that China keep assuring everybody that they're not going backward and then the uh, opening up will be even wider. So is therefore, there, the signal is very clear yeah. and we are all excited. Are there any potential uncertainties that uh, make people pause and think a little bit or, you know, which give people a sense of uncertainty? Are there anything that's, that's yes. uh, bothering you, for instance, as yeah, an investor? In certain area, for example, uh, the one on the, the, the chips uh, uh, policy restriction by the United States, it does to some extent yeah. affect the uh, semiconductor industry. Mm -hmm. So this is what we are watching. And also the tariff resulted in some of the multinational decided to move part of the production process uh, to, to Vietnam or to Thailand. For example, Sony camera mm -hmm. or some of the uh, TV screen manufacturers. Are you, are you, yes. yeah, are you concerned that the, the labor cost is uh, getting a bit too high on the Chinese mainland? So uh, maybe it makes more sense to relocate to other you know, middle-income well, or low-income countries. Higher labor costs is an old issue. Then now you see the MNC, they're moving into central China, western China, where the wages are relatively lower. Okay. Now, in the past, the wages was high because everybody was concentrating on the coastal cities mm. because of the logistics. But now China has the speed train and have the highway. So I think slowly China is a big country that the cost situation will ease as they move into other part of China, which are no longer limited by logistic constraint, which was in the past. Okay. Therefore, I think which cost is not so much uh, the, the, the immediate concern, but rather the logistic that able to, to move in and out of deeper China mm. and, and, and certain industries, semiconductor, yes, there might be a constraint, but China have many other uh, industries, especially those who are related to domestic demand. Hmm. And China is a big economy with a rising middle class. Okay. Uh, we are very optimistic that foreign investment into China in those areas which are linked to their domestic demand right. okay. uh, will be very much welcome. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask two, two more questions. That's all the time I have. One to Zun and one to David. Zun, um, do you see any major shift in China's foreign policy? Uh, throughout the COVID years, uh, me following, especially, you know, China and the developing countries uh, dynamic, how China has been constantly engaging, there has been a policy of constant engagement and providing moral more leadership 
also to developing countries. I think what will shift is hopefully the frequency of high level interaction and engagement. And this is something which will be a positive development. But overall, I mean, China also the, the global security initiative has been more has been better explained to the world. This is going to help especially the global south understand China's policy moving forward. And that said, another important thing to recognize is that even during COVID years, some critical developments among the Belt and Road countries, the Belt and Road Initiative have taken place. Those will pick up pace. Already more delegations from worldwide are coming to China to understand China's development and to be able to practice those principles, learn from China's example when okay. they go back home. Another example I'll give, maybe the last one for, for now, yeah. is that the special economic zone development has been very critical for developing countries. Right. And that's where, you know, more face-to-face -face frequent uh, interactions between the business sectors uh, of okay. China and other countries All can right. play a very important role in yeah. expediting that. Finally, David, um, what else will you be looking for during this year's two sessions, which will have far-reaching impact on uh, countries in other parts of the world, especially probably in the global south? Well, the biggest issue that we face right now um, are the external issues. Uh, President Xi talks about the global community of shared future, and it's vital to all of us. We only have one globe, and we only have one future. And if half of the planet is determined to have a future of confrontation and conflict, the other half of the planet cannot enjoy a future of peace and prosperity. Within that context, China and the US are by far now the biggest and strongest players in the game. And therefore, the relationship between China and the US is absolutely vital to the global community. And the picture there is not very positive at all. The U.S. seems at the moment to be hell-bent on creating confrontation and conflict, and the war rhetoric is ramping up. So the single biggest problem that China has to face is not in managing the, the micro-problems in the domestic arena. It's finding a way to break through uh, and recreate some kind of positive relationship with the United States, and that is going to be a very hard Task. What, I don't know yeah, to, David, in one sentence, what does China need the most at this moment if it, if it tries to stabilize its economy, if it tries to, you know, uh, build its, uh, its society, keep people employed? What do you think China needs the most in terms of external environment? It has to be continuity. Colin, do you have one word here? Unstability, peace, and non-confrontation. We have to leave it there, but the, the key words will stay in our mind. Peace, stability, and non-confrontation. Thank you so much, Colin Macaris, Tan Ki Jiap, Wang Jiang Yu, Zun Ahmad Kuhn, and David Ferguson for this uh, wonderful discussion on the two sessions, China's annual political season. With that, we come to the end of this special edition on Lixian. As usual, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lixian in Beijing. You've got the time.